I need to take Obed with me everywhere I go and just to keep me encouraged like that. So thank you, my brother. It's really good to be with you guys. I will give a quick update as far as Church Plant goes. Um, I I'm, have the privilege of getting to plant this church with a co-planter, a guy named James Leckler. Crazy, crazy God story where he and I get to do this together as a team. And they live out in Minnesota. He and his wife, Betsy, with their four children. And there's a date set for them to move, so that's a pretty big update. July 3rd, they're going to be making their trek uh, out this way. And um, so you can pray for them and pray for kind of the last-minute goodbyes for them in Minnesota. They've been there for many years. He's been part of a church called Bethlehem Baptist there as an elder and um, was part of the campus ministry that I am a part of as well. So there's a lot of deep roots that go from that church to me and back um, out here. So... That's happening. Uh, my wife and I have been working with Campus Outreach as college ministry, me, for close to 30 years, which will date me uh, a lot. So you guys are now wondering how old I am, and I'll just let that go for later. But uh, f- And uh, this next month, starting tomorrow, is my last month with Campus Outreach. So it's no small kind of goodbyes, but it's beautiful that I get to come alongside, and what we'll be doing will be with college students and I'm very thrilled about this next season of our life. We're doing a lot of travel this next month, and then, um, but throughout this next few months, we're planning on just coming and joining with you in worship, and um, as a kind of investigation team, if you're here, you're part of that investigation team, you just raise your hand so everyone sees who you are. Oh, they're all over, so yes, very good, good to see many of you here. So um, we're a scratch plant, meaning we're, we're introducing Jesus to a lot of people that don't know Jesus, as well as discipling uh, young believers, and that's what's happening. So you'll be seeing more of us, unfortunately, for at least a short season, and it's just been a joy to um, come alongside and to partner with you, and excited about more of that. So with that being said, let me jump into the text. I'm going to continue in the story of Acts, in Acts, Acts 21 starting in verse 27. I'm just going to go ahead and read the entirety of this text with you so that you have context a little bit of what we're getting ourselves into. And you'll recognize right off the bat that we're in the middle of a story. So you're kind of catching a, like a, the next chapter from where Obed left things, and then we'll uh, leave it for next week as well. Uh, a little bit incomplete as far as the story goes, but um, you'll get the gist of it here. So let me uh, start in verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, crying out, Men of Israel, help us! This is a man who teaches everywhere against our people and against our law and against this place. Furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple." The whole city was stirred up, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, the commander of the Roman regiment received a report that all Israel was in turmoil. Immediately he took some soldiers and centurions and ran down to the crowd. When the people saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came and up and arrested Paul, ordering that he be bound with two chains. Then he asked, who was he and what he, uh, what has, what he had done? So uh, some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks. 
When Paul reached the steps, they had been, uh, he had been carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the crowd that followed him kept shouting, away with him. What a, uh, quite a, a pick-me-upper this morning, right? Like, um, can't wait to hear about this message. And, well, interestingly enough, a lot of us in the investigation team for Center City Church have been studying through the book of Acts alongside uh, with you guys. And so it's, it's been fun to come in to listen to messages um, that we're also looking at in our daily devotions and our times together in our small groups as well. And one of the guys in one of my men's groups, pulled, uh, after reading this text, he said, man, if I wasn't already a believer, after reading that text, I'm not sure I want to be a believer. And I thought, yeah, I can relate to that. And later I thought about it, and I was, I was reminded of a framework that I had wished that I had shared with him that I'm going to start out this morning's message with, with you. And it's, um, it's a hermeneutical lens, it's an interpretive lens, uh, a framework in which you can begin to approach the narrative text, especially in Scripture, and, and, and have a little bit of more understanding. And it's simply asking this question, what is descriptive versus what is prescriptive? Right? What is descriptive? What is prescriptive? What is descriptive is simply what is being described. What story is being told? It's not necessarily saying you must do this or don't do this, but it's just simply telling the story, what's being described. And then what is prescriptive? Think of a prescription. What is being prescribed? What specific command is God uh, commanding you to obey? So back in Acts 1, they cast lots to figure out who would be in leadership, right? Was that descriptive or prescriptive? Well, it was descriptive, right? It was just simply describing what they did. And that's not giving a normative like, definition of how to pick leaders in our day. Um, and there are other passages of scriptures that would say, repent and believe, pray, meditate on scriptures. Those are prescriptive texts. And what we find here in Acts 21 is this is mostly describing what's going on. This is descriptive. And so good news, most likely, if you become a Christian, <laughs> um, I can't say f- uh, fully, but the, the likelihood of you being mobbed is very, very low. So um, I'll leave it at that. So, um, so um, <clears throat> let's get into a little bit of what is being said. Now, the scripture starts off here by simply saying, the seven days were almost over. Now, we, got, we need a little bit of context for this. And I'll have a little bit of crowd participation this morning. I know you don't know me, and I don't know you, and so I won't uh, try to embarrass anyone, and hopefully I won't embarrass myself. But how many of you who were here last week or were able to hear the message online last week? Okay, very good, very good. And now, how many of you would remember anything of the context of what was going on in this, in this storyline? That's a little bit of a harder question. Okay, few, few folks. Is anyone bold enough to share just anything that they remember from the context? I know, I took, it, I took it up one more notch. I'm so sorry. You just thought you were going to get nods, and then I went there. My bad. So, anyone, anyone? Yes. Yes, say that one more time. Yes, they were, they were preparing for a Nazarite vow, like a cleansing. Very, very good. And why they were doing that needs a little bit of unpacking. Like, why were they going through this Nazarite vow right there? Well, um, Paul enters back into Jerusalem, very good by the way, 
And as they enter back in, as he enters back into Jerusalem, he's hanging out with the homies, right? Like he's hanging out with his friends, the elders, and they're just talking about what God has been doing. And he's bragging on Jesus. He's saying, Jesus has been doing this and this amongst the Gentiles. And these are things that are going on. And they praise God together. And as they praise God together, his friends say to him, listen, this is all good, but there's some things that are being said about you. Right? There's some, the reality is that there, there, there are these lies that are being told about you, Paul. Like what other people are saying about you is that you don't care about the law anymore and that you really don't care about our customs. You don't really care about the things that define us as a people group or as a nation. Like you've just thrown away all of, your, of the Jewish heritage there. Um, so there was ethnic and national customs like circumcision that were going on. And uh, for many of those folks that were in that area... They, their central value system was built around being Jewish, right? And what Paul had, had, had come in to say was that what's most central is not being Jewish, but it's being a follower of Christ. And, see, and, and I thought, think about this for a second, because the reality is that whether you realize it or not, and whether you're able to articulate this or not, you and I all have a central value system that has a central message, Right? Like, we have a central value system that we see all of life through. All of life's experiences, all of other messages that you hear are kind of sifted through and seen through the lens, this prism of your central value system. And for them, it was these traditions, it was, it was about being Jewish. And for Paul, it was about Christ. Um, <clears throat> and so Paul is really, in essence, being accused of not being Jewish enough, right? He's not... Uh, he's being accused of not being Jewish enough. And not only that, he's also being accused of turning people away from being Jewish as well. And so what they do is they say, you know what? Paul says, I don't have any issues with any of these customs. Bring it on. And so they go through this ritual and, they, and, they put, and for seven days there's a cleansing that goes on and, and this is happening. Now, um, the reality is that Paul was saying something. Here. It wasn't that, that this came out of nowhere, but it was at the same time not true. What, and what Paul was really getting at was this. He was saying people are free from the law as a way of gaining favor with God. Like you no longer have to go through all these things to get favor with God, my friends. That's what he was getting at, and yet he was misunderstood and he was falsely accused. If you want further proof that Paul wasn't against any of these customs, turn back just a few chapters to Acts 16. Just a few chapters earlier, you read, read with me, Acts 16, just the first three verses. Paul also came to Derbe. I'll give you a second to get there. Acts 16, verses 1 to 3. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those um, parts, and they all knew that his father was a Greek. Like, so what's going on there is like he began to realize, you know what, <clears throat> I don't want to add any other offense <laughs> here, and so what am I going to do? I'm going to go ahead and have um, Timothy circumcised, and, and I thought about that, and I thought, you know what, I'd have, if I were Timothy, I'd have to say to Paul, like, are you sure? Like, this is like, he was an adult at this time, right? Like, let's pray a little bit longer. Maybe um, you go this time and we'll see how it goes, right? Like, I'll, I'll catch me on the, on, the, on the next trip, right? Well, you see that Paul isn't against the customs or traditions, right? 
just as Paul did with Timothy in valuing circumcision back in Acts 16, he does here in valuing these rituals and these, these uh, customs. He didn't want to add any offense to the gospel that is already offensive. Think about that for a second. The gospel is offensive. Uh, to understand the good news of Jesus, you have to understand the bad news. And the bad news is that you are a sinner fallen short of God and his glory. That's offensive. Grace is offensive. No one wants to, it naturally receives grace. Um, so he takes this on. He tried to remove any obstacle, any potential offense, and he took on this purification ritual along with his friends. And so this is where the passage from this morning picks up. Let me read again from verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, crying out, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches everywhere against our people and against the law and against his place. Furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and to defiled this holy place. Well, we get introduced to these folks. <clears throat> these were Jewish folks that were from the province of Asia, <clears throat> probably the folks that are being talked about in Acts 19, verse 9, where it says this, some of them, those that were in the temple, became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. They were these folks from the province of Asia. They were intentionally agitating. They were intentionally attacking, and they were even recruiting folks to come with them. They stirred up the crowd, as it says, and they seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. Come with us. Help us. <clears throat> One last quick observation. Um, they were divisive, and they were absolutists, right? They were divisive. They were creating division, and they were absolutists. It's all or nothing. There's no nuance about them. <laughs> Like this is th that um, <clears throat> there's no in-between. This man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and against our law in this place. Do you hear in that the us-them? Do you hear in that the absolutism that's taking place there? Well, let's keep reading as, uh, as we keep this text in front of us. The whole city was stirred up and the people rushed together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, the commander of the Roman regiment received a report that all Israel was in turmoil, and immediately he took soldiers and centurions, ran down to the crowd. When the people saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating him. Um, so what's happening here? Well, in essence, a mob has been incited. A mob has just kind of formed, and they are there is a mob mentality that has kind of um, just taken over in this moment. Well, last week as Obed was sharing, he said, you know, this, this seemingly new fad of the cancel, cancel culture is no new fad at all. It existed way back in the time of the scriptures and even beyond then. And, and it's very true about this mob mentality as well. Um, um, that what we begin to realize is that this, this phenomenon of a crowd that's formed and then a mob that starts to be incited and then just violence it seems to incur is not, is not a new thing, my friends. Like, it's been happening for a while. So the question is, what does this text teach us about this phenomenon? Like, what, what can we learn, not just about the past, but what, what can we learn about the present? So what I want to do for the next little bit is just give you four observations with four implications that are sprinkled out for us today and then end with one application, okay? So I want to talk a little bit about, like, what does this story teach us about this mentality that exists even in us today? <clears throat> so, um, observation number one. Whenever there, this 
mentality happens, it always comes from a message, right? It always comes from a false narrative. It comes from a false message that creates disorder and chaos. <clears throat> that false narratives are behind a mob mentality. That there's a false message um, that creates a mass chaos. Now, at best, maybe some of these are half-truths, right? But yet, there is a false narrative. Um, verse 28, men of Israel, help us. This man teaches everywhere against our people and against the law. We just read that, that this is not true. And, and, uh, and furthermore, not just is there simply like a false message, but there's also chaos that ensues. The commander comes and he arrests them and some in the crowd and he says like, what's going on? Look, what has this guy done? And one person's yelling one thing, another person's yelling another thing. And it says this, and since the commander could not get at the truth, he ordered Paul be brought into the barracks. He's like, we got to break this thing up. And um, this is such mass chaos. So the first quick observation I just want to make is that the mob mentality comes always from a mob message. The second observation is that this mentality, this mob mentality, mentality is not just a historic event or a conglomeration of a bunch of different historic events. But friends, this is part of the human condition. This is part of the human condition from way back. Like what happens when we read this is, is, is oftentimes we can begin to think of ourselves like, and think of this text and go, what's the big deal? Like why is circumcision such a big deal? They just need to get over it. This is not that big of a deal. Can you imagine what the his, history books are going to be saying about us? <laughs> in 15 to 20, maybe 10 years. Um, well, let's look back a little bit in, in order to look forward. First, let me look back. Um, you see, the reality is that Jesus had crowds amongst him as well. And, his, and as his popularity increased, the crowds increased as well. And we get a glimpse into the heart of our Savior Jesus, into his heart and his perspective when it comes to crowds through his disciples who knew him best. First from John and then second from Matthew, right? So first, John, it says this, John 2, uh, 2 verse 23, while he was in Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus, at the Passover feast, Many people saw the signs he was doing and believed in his name. So what's happening? Many people are starting to follow him. They're starting to, his, his gathering is like growing. His likes are increasing, right? Like his, his Yelp review is pretty high, right? Like he's gone viral in a sense for that time in that space. And yet this is what it says in verse 24. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them for he knew them all. He did not need any testimony about man for he knew what was in a man. I love that word. Jesus did not entrust himself to, that, to the popular majority crowd, right? Like he knew what was going on. And, and at least you begin to think that Jesus, Jesus just hated the crowds. Uh, read what Matthew 9, 36 says about Jesus and the crowds. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, friends, Jesus, when he sees the crowds, he both loves them and us in the crowds, but yet he doesn't entrust himself to the popular majority vote of the day. Um, so having looked back, let's look forward. Are you, is anyone here familiar with the Newman effect? And this has nothing to do with Seinfeld, but um, 
I'm dating myself a little bit. Does anyone know about the Newman Effect? Well, I didn't know about it either until a few weeks back. I was reading a book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, and I learned about this Newman Effect. Well, in essence, what this is, is a phenomenon that came from an interview that's really become a well-known meme of our day. And basically, the interviewer takes everything that the, guy, the person is saying, and, he, and, and, and she ends up twisting it in the most inflammatory way with the simple line, so you are saying, right? Are y'all familiar with it now? Is it coming? Yes. So, so you are saying women aren't intelligent enough to run these top companies. That's nothing of what was being said. So you are saying that anyone who believes in equality should basically give up because it ain't going to happen. So you are saying we should organize ourselves, um, our societies along the lines of the lobsters, so on and so forth. This is what I would call, and it's coined uh, by a friend of mine, a culture of false absolutism, right? Like we live in a day and age where everything is completely absolute. In other words, there's wholesale, complete affirmation or rejection of either a person, a group of people, or a set of beliefs. So, um, so you either say, you know what, I agree with that person and, and all of that person, or, if you, or it's assumed that if I disagree with one, per, one part of that person, I disagree with all of who they are down to their core. Um, friends, our culture of false absolutism is a modern mob mentality, right? That what we, are, uh, what we see around us today is happening, is really the same thing that's happening then. What happened to Paul is really happening to us. And it's not just simply something that exists out here and out there and out there, friends. But my third point is this mob mentality exists within as well. This mob mentality isn't just something that's on the outside, but a mob mentality is really something that exists from within. You see, in this story, there are those that were the instigators, but there are also those that were the participators. Now, some of you uh, might be wondering, is that a word? And yes, participators is a word. So um, <laughs> I had to look it up. So there are instigators and there are participators. And I'm only using that so you can help me remember this. And the reality is that we are all either instigators or participators, that this mob mentality exists from the outside and also from within. Verse 30 says this, people, well, uh, uh, let me read this. Whole, the whole city was stirred up and people rushed together. Right? Another translation says this, that people came running from all directions. And, and what is it, friends, about us? Because um, that has this within each one of us, that, that we're so intrigued by conflict. We're so drawn in by a fight. Right? Now, you might not personally care to have personal conflict, but you still can watch a lot of those videos or those clips, or we're just drawn in uh, by conflict. And when we read these stories, what often happens, and what happens in me and what happens in you is that we read ourselves as the protagonist into the story, don't we? The hero. Like I began to think to myself, man, if I were in Paul's shoes, what would I have done? Which is a really decent question to ask. But we must also begin to realize that you and I are part of the mob as well. <laughs> like we don't often read ourselves into that part of it. We might be the instigators. We might be... Um, the participators, but friends, this is in the heart of every man and every woman. And um, the, think, the thought is that um, there is this allure to seeing conflict. There's something within us that wants to just kind of go with the crowd. Even if you hate conflict, you still want to just kind of 
go within the flow of the majority crowd. Um, and, and friends, um, a couple quick observations. Without both the instigators and the participators, there really is no story, right? We wouldn't even be knowing about this if it was just the instigators. Um, these writers were those that were coming from the temple. These were the religious people of our day. And interestingly enough, Paul, at one point in his life, was part of this mob mentality. He was the one that was uh, either instigating or participating in the attacking and the killing of Christians, and yet God was gracious to turn his heart. I love this quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who says this, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and if it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Friends, this mob mentality, it exists from the outside, but it also exists from the in. The last observation that I want to make is the mob mentality always leads to death and to destruction. That there is blood that must be shed when the mob is incited. Like they are moving towards that reality. Um, the reason I bring up, and, and we see this with Paul, they are not just after him getting beaten up. It says explicitly they were out to kill him. The reason I bring up um, the Newman effect, the reason I bring up absol uh, this absolutist culture that we live in um, is because, friends, this is not just about this culture, about some interviewer, but this is about you and this is about me. The author of this book continue, uh, continues to write. Let me just uh, read from what he says. The truth is we are all Kathy Newmans now. Did you catch that? It's not about some... In, uh, some um, Interviewer, we are all Kathy Newmans now, and that has become a serious existential threat to the unity of the church. Racism is still a problem. So you are saying we should abandon the gospel and embrace neo-Marxism. Black lives matter. So you're saying all lives don't matter. During the pandemic, we should shelter in place to protect the most vulnerable. So you're saying you are anti-freedom and want all of us to bow down to tyranny. <laughs> We should reopen the economy and help those whose livelihoods and mental health are being devastated by the quarantine. So you are saying you want the virus to spread and more people to die. The list can go on and on and on. Um, <clears throat> just in case <laughs> you begin to think, Gigi, this seems a bit extreme, right? That um, I have never tried to kill anyone. I've never joined a, a mob. I have never, in my own uh, story ever tried to actually incite or be part of, instigate or participate in one, let me just remind you of what Jesus said in his own words from Matthew 5 when he says this, you have heard it said to the ancients, do not murder. And anyone, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Guilty as charged. For me, my friends, it's so quick to dismiss people. <laughs> like, I have been so tempted many, many times just to kind of cut people out of my uh, Facebook, my phone, my whatever. Like, it's in me, and it's in you. I struggle to forgive. I struggle to want to even interact with. I am the one who's quick to dismiss 
and to say, enough, I just want to cut that person out. But the problem is that line dividing good and evil is right here. So how can we resist this mob mentality to divide to the heart and mind? How can uh, you keep yourselves from being an instigator or a participate? I knew this would happen. This is why my wife told me not to use that word. Uh, Thanks, babe. Um, A participator. How can you not just keep from these things, but how can you cling to the central message in the person of Jesus and to boldly proclaim him? Well, it's through the gospel of grace found in the face of Jesus. It's through the gospel of grace found in the face of Jesus. Let me just end with this. You see that there was only one who never, ever succumbed to the crowd. Like he never gave in to temptation of just going with the flow or groupthink or just just fitting in with the crowd. You see, there's only one who righteously took on the hatred of the crowd against himself and did not fight back. You see, there was only one who said this, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. He was the one who perfectly fulfilled all of the rights. Why? So that you and I would not have to, so that we would be set free, because he knows we couldn't do it on our own. So his righteousness has become our righteousness. There's only one who laid down his rights and took on the greatest injustices of all time. Like what you and I hear all the time is people that are crying out, (laughs) demanding rights and demanding uh, injustices be uh, taken care of. And there was one, only one, who fully laid down his rights and took on the greatest injustice of all time. Without him, nothing is possible, and yet with him, all things are possible. When I say the gospel of grace found in the face of Jesus, what I am not saying, just so you're clear, is not saying that this is just a set of beliefs that you must just adhere to and try your your hardest to do better and to obey. Like, that's not what the gospel is. You see, like, oftentimes we can take this and we can take anything, our hearts do this, take anything and make them into works that we must perform, rites and rituals that we must perform. And so I don't mean that this is just a set of beliefs, and it is, but it's not just that. Like oftentimes we look at the gospel like an algorithm, right? Like we just, we just put in life's situations and problems and we get the right answer out, and then we go to try to live by that, by ourselves and without God. John Calvin says it this way, and I love this beautiful summarization. He says, the gospel is Christ clothed in his gospel. That the gospel is a person. And so friends, I'm not telling you to go work harder and to stop these things. I'm telling you there's one who's come to you. There's one that has reached out to you that the gospel is a person. And so when you have Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness for you. You fail and you will continue to fail and you will fight against this mob mentality inside of you to kind of go with the flow. And yet there is one who's in you who's greater than the one who's in the world Friends, my one application is follow the Messiah, not the mob, the one who is coming after you. Let me go to him in prayer. Father, you know how incredibly indicting these words are in my own life and in my own story and my own relationships. And so, 
Who will rescue me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Father, I confess and we confess as a people that we have this mentality that wants to, uh, to do away with people. And even though we are far more sophisticated, at least in this point in time, to not murder anyone, you know, Father, how guilty we are. And you know so much so that you sent your son to come and to pay that penalty and to give us a path towards your righteousness and to empower us with your resurrected power. Thank you for the story. Thank you for the ways that it teaches us principles that we can live today. God, may we have Christ clothed in his gospel as our only righteousness. Uh, Help us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name.